Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for the military and veteran lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now, over the last few months, we've been covering the trend of veterans running for political office. And I get it. It's not exactly a new idea. And as long as there's been military veterans, there's been vets that go on to serve in politics. I mean, hell, even George Washington was a military man first, right? My friend over at Military Times, Leo Shane, wrote a nice piece about the vets that are currently serving in Congress. In the article entitled, Vets Serving in the 117th Congress, Leo noted, In 1973, three in every four members of Congress had some type of military experience. Fast forward to 2021, it's about one in every six members. That's the lowest since at least the start of World War II. Now, here's a few fun facts he also found. 91 veterans in the 117th Congress. Give or take a few by now. 17 will serve in the Senate. 74 in the House. There are 28 Democrats, 63 Republicans. 13 served in the military in the 1960s or earlier. Man, that's old. And 50 served in the military after the year 2000. 49 had overseas combat deployments. And 15 are first-time lawmakers. There are 12 states that have no veterans in their delegations. And what is no surprise is the state with the most vets is the great state of Texas with nine. Now, a few months ago, I interviewed Eli Crane, a former Navy SEAL and entrepreneur who's running for office in Arizona. And again today, we'll hear from another veteran with an impressive background who's seeking to represent North Carolina in the U.S. Senate. Marjorie K. Eastman is an author, an advocate, a U.S. Army combat veteran, and her memoir, The Frontline Generation, is the first book to define post-9-11 service and leadership. She's been a keynote speaker, a social influencer, and last fall, she announced her candidacy for the Republican nomination for the 2022 U.S. Senate election in North Carolina. She was cool enough to talk to me for almost an hour. And unlike the TV news, we were lucky to have more than just three minutes to try to fit it all in. I think you'll find this interview interesting, and hopefully it answers some of the questions that you might have. So with that, former U.S. Army Captain Marjorie K. Eastman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Nice. Well, you know what? You are one that I've been watching over the last couple of weeks and months because, um, well, you're an interesting veteran to me because you have a couple things that I wanted to highlight before we get into your bio here. And that is your former enlisted. You have experience in Afghanistan and you've led and commanded troops as well as been led and commanded, which is kind of the key ingredient there that I don't see often enough when I see some of these candidates for Congress. So with that, tell me a little bit about the background that listeners should know before we get to hear about why you're running for Senate. Uh, well, thank you just for saying that. That's a huge compliment. And 
Yes, I am prior enlisted. I joined the military right after 9-11 because of 9-11. And it wasn't to join for a career. It wasn't to, you know, be an enlisted or officer. It was to serve because when 9-11 happened, I, you know, like a lot of people, I, I wanted to help. I wanted to do something because no one does that to my country. And, you know, you fast forward and, you know, I'm, I know that I'm, I'm the candidate that's also talking about, I got into this race because of the fall of Afghanistan. And that's a big dynamic. Um, August, you know, like a lot of veterans right now, um, we have a range of emotions going on that are very real still as we see the, the, the consequences of, of what that disastrous withdrawal. And it just, you know, that was my tipping point because I asked myself again, how do I really help? Because no one does this to my country. That wasn't us, the way that we left, the, what, the things that are happening now. And, you know, we just, we don't leave people behind. And we need to send, and, you know, when I started digging in, I kind of put my intel hat back on. You know, you look at it and it's quite simple when you can peel it back. The problem is, is we have career politicians making these decisions. We do not have people that have had skin in the game, that have been there, done that that, you know, are proven leaders. And so we need to change it. And the only way to change it is to be the change. We have to do this. Okay, let's pump the brakes right there. We're going to come back to that. You <laughs> you decided to run because of our fumbled exit from Afghanistan. I do want to come back to that. Uh, real quick, uh, enlisted, what was your MOS? I was a 37 Fox. So I was trained in psychological operations, information operations, and then worked with the civil affairs of battalion as well. Psyoper, huh? All right. My, uh... <laughs> yeah. So the glorious aspect of that means I wrote a lot of new uh, pamphlets and, and, and uh, leaflets and broadcast messages and just really tried to have that communications platform for all, all of our operations. That's what I did. And in fact, a very prolific veteran buddy of mine, Boone Cutler, was a former psyoper down there in Sodder City. And uh, man, he can get into it with you. Psyop is sort of the mental spin we give things outwardly, sending out into the places we go and fight or go and defend. And it's that it's that psychological messaging that the military needs to have. And you were one of the pros that did that as an enlisted. Yeah. And then as an officer, um, were you also an intel officer? I was an intel officer. So as you can see, those go so well together um, because it's about information and getting information across um, and, and, and making it actionable and, and doing the right things with it. Because information, intelligence, that's what drives operations. And so that that was absolutely my skill set, my training, my bread and butter, so to speak. And uh, it was a real privilege to be able to, do, to work in that area. And let's uh, wind it up with some deployments. Um... What fascinating <laughs> places, what, what fascinating yes. fun places did the army send you? Well, first one was like, you know, right at the very beginning of operation Iraqi freedom. I deployed in support of that with a special operations task force. I, when I got back, I received my direct commission uh, from that. And then I, you know, my second tour was during the rough surge years in Afghanistan during 09 through 2010. And like you mentioned, by that point, I was a commander um, you know, I definitely had um, grown and learned and I mean, it just so much as far as, you know, how I'd matured and developed. And, you know, we had an incredible mission that year. And, you know, it's personal. The fall of Afghanistan, it is personal because I woke up at sunrise to render those four second delayed salute to our fallen heroes. I held the hands of the little Afghan girls that we got back into school. You know, I worked with those amazing men and women that are now still trying to get out of Afghanistan and their lives are, you know, there are, their, their lives are threatened because of this disastrous withdrawal. So um, yeah, we need, it, it just was that tipping point for me. And it just is, it's a, it's a perfect example of how all the other crises that we have right now as a nation, again, people are making decisions off of, off of getting reelected. And we have to stop sending career politicians. It's it's the definition of insanity, right? You don't you don't get different results if you don't send different people, right? There's the essence of it. Right on. And we're going to unpack more of that when we get into your platforms and some of the initiatives that you want to work towards changing. With respect to Afghanistan, well, first the surge, the surge era in Iraq. Um, wow, wow, some hell to pay. Uh, were you uh, were you Mosul? Were you Fallujah? Were you Baghdad? Were you 
So I was at the very beginning. So, um, so we were, uh, where I was at was a special operations location. And so my husband, actually, I, I've learned a lot about Iraq because he went and he was on the ground in various locations through multiple tours. And that's the part of the story. I think, um, I think as much as is important to share that I was a Mustang is that I'm also a military spouse. My husband served 20 years. He did 17 combat tours. He was an enlisted infantry ranger. Um, he was an officer flying special operations. He did an extended seven, um, gosh, extended tour over Sauter City flying Apaches when he first got out of flight school. And so, you know, this is, this is very much the essence of the perspective that military, you know, service members have, especially when they're, you know, they're also a spouse. Um, and it's, it's important for, you know, to send those types of people to make the decisions for our nation. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, the data, um, there's a direct correlation. Our, our country, we are stronger. We are safer when we have more people that have been to combat making those decisions because we don't make those decisions lightly. We know the cost. And let's just wrap real quick. Uh, where were you with Afghanistan? Because I know we're going to come back to this. Yes. 2009. Uh, we got there in the fall of 2009 through most of 2010. Uh, so it was those rough surge years, like I mentioned. And, you know, my headquarters was based out of Bagram. And then I was on a rotator every week or two. I was jumping on convoys, jumping on ring routes, because I had teams spread out all over eastern Afghanistan, because that's the nature of intel. You know, we support maneuver elements. And we were doing full spectrum intelligence operations. So it was stability, support. It was, you know, offensive, defensive. And um, my teams were were doing incredible work. And that is, it's so much of what um, I'm the most proud of. There are the men and women that I still, I count them as friends. Now I want to dive into that just for one real quick second. One of my favorite interviews was with an Army Intel veteran, former contractor after the U.S. Army. His name's Pete Turner. The focus of our conversation at one point was he said, we don't deserve to stay in Afghanistan because we'd done it wrong for so long. In your time there, did you ever notice things that were being done to make the mission presentation look like it was going according to the general's plan, but in effect, were not taking any traction with the locals? And I cite Pete's example of the greenhouses that we were giving them and that we wanted the Afghanis to change their farming techniques so they could make a more robust yield and they could have a little greater profit. And they were being given all this equipment and the Afghanis would refuse to use it. And they told Pete time and time again, if you give me this greenhouse, it shows that I am working with you. And that's a dangerous proposition to do in Taliban country. And further, he went on to say that To rid the nation of Taliban was like going into California's Napa Valley and telling the winemakers, we're here to save you from the Californians. (laughs) At one point in time, they were all Taliban or many of them viewed Taliban beliefs philosophically, but just some chose to grow grapes and others chose to pick up guns. Did you ever stand up and say, Colonel, General, this is not what the people on the ground want. Well, what I'll say is this, uh, for myself and the soldiers I, I, I served with, we had radical candor. We were always reporting up and giving the feedback of what was happening on the ground. Um, and that's what I'm very proud of that. You know, there was one example where we were in an interrogation and my team members were talking with um, a, a local source and um, they said, you, you know, at one point in the, in the, um, the conversation, it was mentioned, well, why would I help you? Your president just told us that he was going to be leaving Afghanistan in two years. This was back when President Obama had made that announcement, went public and said, oh, we're going to be out, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you guys are leaving. If I help you for two years and then you go, and he goes, what do you think is going to happen to me once you're gone? You know, and it was like, it was just, again, the the, the strategic blunder and, and the people in Washington that don't understand you don't make statements like, oh, hey, we've got like a mark on the wall here, you know, and that's when we're gone. Because on the ground, that hurt us for months. I mean, we were struggling to get people to work with us right after President Obama made that statement. Um, and it was trying to remind them, no, we're here. We're right. We're right now. You know, just, you know, we had built all that trust, all that rapport. And that was very tough. 
So that's the whole idea here. And the bigger point to be made is people in Washington need to understand, you know, conditions on the ground. And you often have a deeper perspective of conditions on the ground. Like I said earlier, if when you've been there, you've done that. That is so important. Having the perspective of knowing operations, having served in the military, and that's what we don't have. That's what we don't have right now, which is dangerous. We have so many people making decisions on our national security and on our foreign policy that they have never been there. I could go on and on and start rattling off yeah. some of their backgrounds and qualifications. Um, and it, it's, it's disturbing. Um, we need to send more veterans. And this is exactly what happened after the fall of Saigon. You know, so many were absolutely mortified of when that happened. There was a wave of World War II veterans that said, no, not on my watch. We've got to serve again. This has to be a tour of duty. And that's my heart. And that's where I'm in on this. This is a tour of duty. We have to go in and this is our new arena. This is our new mission. We've got to get our country back on track and we've got to make sure the decision makers said have had skin in the game and they, mm-hmm. they are making decisions for the best interests of our country, not their reelection. Right on. So it was that moment in August. It was watching that fumbled exit from the commercial airport there and not Bagram. It was surrendering all of, you know, our embassy and all that equipment and, and, and just basically rolling up the carpets and getting out as fast as we could. It was that moment that made you say, wait a minute, I'm going to run for office. Yeah. My life of, uh, you know, actually, you know, like, like, you know, I went to business school when I left the military, I went to Vanderbilt. Um, I've helped scale and work with other veteran entrepreneurs. I, that's the point. I could do any other thing in my life right now. Um, a lot of people who are running for office, they're looking for a promotion because they started out as a city council member and then the house guy and then the this and the that because they are there and they are going to be there for career politicians. And that's the problem. The founders wanted people like me, like you, like us, we the people who have had a life, have expected, have perspective, have experience, you know, my experience in business, my experience in national security. And now my, my talk about my experience as a parent with education. I, I'm the only mom that's got a little boy climbing onto a school bus. And so when we unpack that, I want to talk through our three pillars. But yeah. I mean, we, that's what it was all about. You're, you go in the middle of your life, you know, and you go and you give back and you give that perspective. You make it a little bit better. And then you go and, you know, the next guy, a guy or gal comes up behind you. Right. But that's, that's not happening. We have people that are staying there. They're putting up a tent. And I mean, it was just this pushing point. You know, it's like all the different things that, you know, kind of been leading up over the last, really, it's been through this pandemic of just looking around going, what is going on here? You know, and I have to tell you, one of those first flares for me was at the very beginning of the pandemic when the the senator, I'm running for an open seat. It's for Richard Burr's seat. And you might know the history at the beginning of the pandemic. Richard Burr, who was sitting as the chairman for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, you know, there's this investigation. I don't even believe it's complete yet of how he short sold his stock when he when he learned from Intel that the pandemic was coming. Right. I mean, that was just a flare for me because I have put my life on the line in combat, you know, with intelligence and the men and women by my side. I would never make a decision off of that for personal gain. That is absolutely mortifying. And so that was just a real flair for me to say, who are, who are these people that are in these seats making decisions for us? How does he qual- he or she qualify and have perspective and understanding of fill in the blank? You know, and it's, again, we have to be the change. We have to change the system. We've mm. got to stop sending career politicians. Okay. So the catalyst, both an ethical situation with the sitting senator at the time from North Carolina and then the Afghanistan issue, both just motivated the hell out of you to say, wait a minute, I'm going to step up and try to be the change. Um, As we look at the totality of all that, let's just wrap Afghanistan real quick and say, with respect to how that exit motivated you to want to jump in and get politically active, which I've never known you to be before. That's right. (laughs) What is it that you think should have happened then in Afghanistan? Because it seems to me leaving at all would have put all of them at risk because no matter what time we left, 
there was no allegiance to a central government. They were loyal to their local governor or their local mayor, if you will. What would you have done differently to try to corral and to make change for a nation of disassociated tribes? <laughs> well, you said that so well. That you're exactly. It's a nation of disassociated tribes. And, um, and, and this is the most important thing you point out, too. Every administration, I mean, over the last 20 years, there have been mistakes made all away, all along the way. Um, and, and what I'll, I think the best way to wrap it up, and I wrote about this in my journals when I was over there. I remember one night writing this down in one of my journal entries, which ended up be, being one of the ones that was in my book, The Frontline Generation. I talked about how we were fighting a 20, this war, this 20 year war, year at a time. That's not the way we should have done it. We've had, I mean, it was just, you know, there's so many things that didn't go back. And especially when you think about how, we were supporting the military. I mean, you mentioned it before, the $85 billion worth of our equipment now in the hands of the Taliban. I mean, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what doesn't, because that's another example of what went wrong here, right? Um, and, you know, and that's what it gets down to, I think, at the end of the day, is that, you know, when, no one's ever going to make perfect decisions, but you have to make decisions based off of conditions on the ground and your national security interests. And I think those kept moving. Uh, um, you know, it's kind of like when you move the, the wind, the measure of success, the wind bar, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, that's what it gets down to is that, you know, we have to focus on having people that are making decisions based off of what they're hearing from, you know, conditions on the ground and what are our national security interests. Okay. Korea ended we established the 33rd parallel, stay in South That's Korea. Right. World That's War II right. ended, we stay in Germany, and we stay in Japan. Global war on terrorism seems to wind down. Do we stay in Afghanistan and create a NATO-led base that will be there in perpetuity until those people can stand on their own? Well, every advisor suggested that to President Biden. They said, we have 2,500 troops that are keeping security in the region right now. And they all made that recommendation to him. Um, this was in this, this was the Senate. Um, I mean, this was just public a, a couple months ago when they all, you know, were, were debriefed on this. I mean, that's the whole point. It's not that we left. It's how we left. And the de decision on honest leaving, again, that's a much bigger one that, I mean, you, again, the leaders were telling President Biden, look at what, what's going on here. So, you know, we know from the leaders that were back, you know, that briefed on the floor in the Senate, I believe it was in September, and they said, hey, we told President Biden, these were our recommendations, and he did not listen. He made his decision based off of public opinion polls and what he wanted to do, and really it was just a slick maneuver to be out by the 20th anniversary, which is absolutely disgusting. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, when you get down to the root of this problem, it's failed leadership. We have career politicians in some very important seats, and we can't send another one of those to the U.S. Senate. And that was part of, you know, when I when I was looking at the people who were running, it was shocking to me. I'm in North Carolina. You can imagine how, you know, we have a pretty big veteran community here. We've got some pretty significant military bases and a military industry you know, you ever heard of Camp Lejeune? You ever heard of Fort, Fort Bragg? Fort Bragg, you know, yeah. <laughs> North Carolina is kind of a big deal. Um, and so when you think about all of these aspects of it, I looked and I thought, wait a second, where are the veterans? And there's so many amazing veterans and retired veterans that are in North Carolina. I would have gotten behind them and helped them and supported them. And, you know, I just, that's what it is all about. We need to send a veteran, especially for a state like North Carolina. So I, that's where I'm at right now. I'm the only veteran running for U.S. Senate in North Carolina. It is amazing North Carolina didn't send forth a veteran or there wasn't one whose name was already in the ring. So after <laughs> August, the debacle there, you decide I'm going to jump in. So let's talk about some of the issues that you want to bring forward and represent your North Carolinians on. Um, that's, that's it breaks right. down into security, economy, and education. Talk to me about yes. security. That's right. And it's what I call three-legged stool. <sighs> All three of these issues are, you know, you can't take one away and not pay attention to the other. 
Um, for me, of course, we all know it comes down to safety and our well-being. It, it's security, whether it's, you know, the rising crime we're seeing here at home, whether it's the border, whether it's China, whether it's this, you know, how weak we look on the, the international stage right now because of the disastrous, disastrous withdrawal. Um, I mean, that's what it gets down to. And, you know, in North Carolina, we also know, you know, hey, we went for a week where 71% of our gas stations did not have gas because of the cyber attack on the colonial pipeline. And as an intelligence professional, you you know that a cyber attack like that, that was called a rehearsal. It's going to happen again. So we need to make sure that we are sending people that understand national security. They're going to prioritize it. And they see how it's connected to the other issues that matter to not only North Carolina, but our country. And so the second issue, I think, is that the, the segue is obviously the economy. We were just talking about the, you know, gasoline and the cyber attack on the colonial pipeline. Let's talk about the economy and, and you know, the rising prices in gas and everything else. When you go to the grocery store, you know, it, the supply chain's a wreck. Inflation is not going away anytime soon right now. And, and this is what it gets down to when you look at the problems with the economy. When I take my little boy to, to the store to get him a jacket, and the store clerk says, well, this is all we have right now because of the pandemic issues. And I said, okay, what's the pandemic story this time? And she says, zippers. Apparently, 90% of zippers are made in China. You know, and it's like, that's why we have a shortage, you know, for jackets. I mean, we know better when, you know, you know that when you go through crisis, you identify pain points. You identify things that really need to be fixed. Because that's something about crisis that it does you a favor. It helps you see things really crystal clear. And so we see these issues right now. We need to fix these things in our economy. And we need to forge a path beyond the pandemic. And so for the third leg of that stool, it's education. You know, that little boy I was talking about, my little guy that going to get him a jacket. Well, I'm the mom in this race. Oh, by the way, um, I've got the little boy. They've had three academic years impacted by the pandemic. And, you know, there's not only just a moral imperative, but this is the thing we always must remember about education, how it ties into economy and security. Any nation that out-educates us will outperform our economy. So we must always prioritize security, economy, and education. It is a three-legged stool. And that is what, you know, North Carolinians, these are the issues that matter to them. And so we need someone that's going to be on a mission, laser focus, do the job, and then come home and see her little boy play baseball. You know, I'm not going to be hanging out in D.C., hanging out with lobbyists. I'm highly incentivized to come right back home after I cast my vote and be here in North Carolina with my neighbors, with the voters, with the people here, hearing what is going on. Uh, and that's the difference that you get in me. It's, it's, you know, it's not just the fact that I'm the only political outsider. I'm the only veteran. I'm the only mom as well. And we saw what happened in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. In fact, those educational ads that Yunkin ran on in the last couple weeks even of his campaign. I'm in Maryland, so I watch the same TV as Virginia and D.C. And it's, you know, as annoying as those political ads are to me. Um <laughs> He did kind of change his game from the typical slamming the other person for not liking dogs and they don't, they are an evil person and they hate children. He actually started running on education and having folks talk about that. And it did change the game for that, change the trajectory of that election. With respect to education now, let's unpack a couple of these. Um, we're in this pandemic and you've got these high wave of caseloads now. I'm not saying high wave of deaths. But I know that there's a high caseload and that's making teachers and educators concerned about being in the same space as kids. I know that there's also the those that say, well, well, kids don't learn as well virtually. What does a legislator do with those facts? No, and that's why we need to keep decisions made locally. Um, We know from our own experience right here, you know, we have our community. We don't need someone from Washington telling us like what what we should be doing with my son's elementary school. Um, and so local decisions are, are important. Um, and that allows parents to have a voice. And, and this is what I'll share too. You're absolutely right. There's a, there's a, there's a, a breathtaking, like amazing, uh, unbelievable spike right now with Omicron after Christmas. 
And I just got a text this morning. It was literally probably 30 minutes before my son's school started that that one of the bus routes was canceled because they didn't have a driver. I mean, we are all facing this and I am right there with you on all of these issues. And I think that's the other part of, you know, we have to send people who are right there with us that are actually, you know, going through these, these experiences and, and now it provides a really deep, thoughtful perspective um, when they make decisions for all of us. So uh, to maybe quote Navy SEAL author and uh, great speaker, Jocko Willink, um, decentralized command is something yes. you're in favor of, which is taking the power out of the Washington and having, you know, those people speak for all these communities, rather taking it down to the community level and saying, hey, if it's not as bad here, then we're not going to go virtual. If it is bad here, we might step off and do virtual for a week or two. But our goal is to ensure that these kids consistently are educated to the highest level. That's right. Okay. All right. Jocko would be proud of you, Marjorie. (laughs) Too bad he doesn't live in North Carolina. Um, I know, right? Let's take a look at, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about supply chain issues. Christmas toys are not going to be available because they're still stuck in a uh, container somewhere, you know, in a shipyard or it can't get off the boat because yeah. they're stuck somewhere, somewhere in the off, Pacific. Somewhere in and, LA. And, and I don't understand supply chain well enough at all. In fact, maybe, I don't know, um, Pete Buttigieg there could help me out. He's a veteran. I might have to book him to, to talk more about uh, how this all works. He's currently serving. You should serving. book him. You should get him on this, get him out here and talk. But what I want to know is how a senator, how a candidate for Senate from North Carolina makes a difference in supply chain issues with respect to China and how our foreign relations with China, which is a national security issue as well as an economic issue, is going to be swayed and moved by one voice from North Carolina. Because the unfortunate reality is, is that, yes, those jacket zippers are all made in China. Everything we get on the shelves of Walmart, the big box retailers, Home Depot, this, that, the other thing, we're addicted to China. How do we have the balls to confront them on both foreign policy and on supply issues that we are addicted to from our genes to our phones? Well, like you said, it, it's got to be peace through strength, strength in our own economy, our own safety, our own education system. You know, and when my little boy, a couple of years ago, he's learning to read and he was reading a little sticker on the back of something that said made in China. And, and he read it and he was, you know, mom, what does this say? And he, a couple of days later, he read something else that said made in China. You know, I don't know where we were and he saw it at a store and he looked at me in, in, in his beautiful innocence. He says, Mom, why are so many things made in China? And this little boy gets it, right? I mean, so what's the business of the U.S. Senate? The business of, the, of a U.S. senator is to make good decisions for our country. And that's, that's where we are failing as voters. We're not sending good decision makers. You're sending a good career politician that can get reelected. And we're all sick of it. I'm right there with you. I'm a voter too. And I am not going to go into a voting booth this year and plug my nose and pick the lesser of two evils. I'm done. I think we're all done with that. So I challenge every other person listening to this. If you know that you can be that sphere of influence in where you are, then be it. Especially if you're a veteran, you are, you are, you have an unmatched currency and you are, are uniquely, uniquely qualified to be a good decision maker. And you've already had skin in the game for your country. And you will hold your country first. And so that's what it's so much about in all of this. And, you know, when it comes down to, you know, that, you know, you talk to these questions like the how, again, you know what veterans do? We actually work together. We will talk with people across the aisle and we will put good ideas on the table and we will get stuff done. And that's what we don't have going on right now in Congress. And it matters that my race here in North Carolina because I'm running for the U.S. Senate. People ask me why the U.S. Senate. I said, that's where the battle is. And I'm always going to be a soldier at heart. So I want to go where the fight is. Our country is tenuously hinging right now. We are 50-50 and 2022 is going to tip us one way or the other. And so we need to tip it with decision makers, good, thoughtful decision makers that have had skin in the game and understand 
So that's where the North Carolina race is important to every American across the country. And that's why I'm asking for people across the country to rally and say, it is time. It's time for the future. It's time to move forward with this new generation. Mm. Now, I agree that the sum total of votes being cast in the Senate, either Republican or Democrat, sway what type of legislation gets to the floor. What ideas do you have that are going to impact American business and getting made in America on more products? Because you and I both know when you make it in America, it gets more expensive. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, just the last two bills, do you even know the page count on either of those? It was like 2,700 pages, I think, for the infrastructure bill alone. And do you think that was all about infrastructure? No. Right. So we have some problems just within the system itself that we need to fix because the fact that we're only getting bills on the table that are 2,700 pages packed with everything that you could imagine, all the pork out there and not even really addressing the issue at hand. They have the, the other the other bill. I mean, they're just the omnibus bills. I mean, that's the problem. And that's exactly what we need to get away from. So we can take what we're going to do with China. We can actually make it a specific bill when it comes to our trade policy, when it comes to our security. I mean, because this is the truth, especially with the economy. China needs us more than we need them. And they know that. And so we need to pay attention to how we're making decisions because the decisions we're making right now, they're going to truly set the course in the trajectory of our country. Do you think, or in conversations you've had with sitting senators or people that are already in the machine, do you really think you can get in there and say, hey, Guys, let's one up, thumb up or thumbs down on this vote right here. Let's take this one single bill, HR one, two, three, four, five, six. Let's take this bill and just vote on this today because you know how they act. It's never been that way. It has always been take some pork, stick it in a bigger bill, take some more pork, take it in a bigger bill, take the pork for Nevada and the pork for California and in West Virginia, you want a bridge and New Jersey, you probably need some hair yeah. gel. Hey, let, let's all, it's not a slight on Jersey. Y'all know you use hair gel. Stop it. Um, they always do that. They take all that crap and they stick it in one massive bill. And they, and, and, and especially when it comes to budget bills, because those are must pass. So That's how right. are you going to get in there and say, yo, fellow Senator, let's just take a look at this one bill. Hell, we couldn't do that with burn pit legislation and veterans are dying. I think we absolutely can. And it, it has happened. I mean, just remember, let's rewind a little bit when we were going through and reading all of the tributes to Bob Dole. And so many people talked about how Bob Dole would wrangle people and he'd pull them together and he would get stuff done and he would create these unusual partnerships and they would be mission focused. Well, guess what? Bob Dole's a veteran. And he leaned on a lot of other veterans that were in Congress in the 80s that we're ready to get the job done. And so that's the exact thing. After World War II, we had about 70% of Congress that was that had served in uniform, that we were veterans. Now today, we're, we're, we're what, teetering around 17, 18%. And there's a direct correlation to the, the decline of veterans in Congress and the increase and in not only the, the, the dysfunction and the vitriol and the divisiveness, um, but it's also the not getting the budget passed. And it's also these like, hey, let's let's die on our sword here. I mean, we've, we can't forget that democracy is not a fight to the death. It's a tug of war. And tug of war makes us stronger and better. And it gets us further. That's the whole beauty of democracy. And that's what veterans don't forget. Because we've been there. We've understood, we understand how to work with different people. And we, you know, you and I never went to our commanders and said, hey, I got 80% of the mission done. I'm going to go to bed. You know, that's, that's just not how we are. And so that's the point. We have to get more veterans there, especially in the Senate, because that's where we have some very important decisions right now. I like it. I mean, you acknowledge that that, that what I'm talking about is real and it's an uphill oh, fight. Yes, and that, absolutely. and that you. A sidebar to that, though, is like, I think part of that divisiveness is is driven by, what's the word I want to use? Some of these clowns that get into office and start doing things like busting balls about, oh, somebody's not wearing a backpack or somebody that compares something wow. to Nazi Germany. Uh, some of these asshats that get in there and, 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 and treat serving our country 
as some sort of performance art oh, where they yeah. just get up and say the wildest thing. You're not going to be that type of candidate. You've known me for a long time. I mean, you understand. I mean, you are what you're saying is right. You're pointing out the point that there's a culture of celebrity that is toxicity right now in Congress, and they don't get the job done. They're not working. And so we need to create this culture of integrity again with the, with the group of people that the majority of Americans still trust. And we need to restore trust by sending those folks, sending veterans to go do this new mission for our country, because we have a lot at stake right now. Do not look for Marjorie K. Eastman to be the candidate that is going to be on TMZ saying the most outlandish shit <laughs> you've ever heard. I like that. Okay, I'm going to hold no, you to that. Well, and this is the thing, too. It's, you know, people are tired of that. They're really tired of it. I mean, we almost need to make politics boring again. Uh, my husband will be the first one to tell you I love to watch a good documentary on the weekend. <laughs> you know, I mean, we need to send people that want to do the work and they're not going there to be on Twitter or to get followers. I mean, I mean, we have to steer this ship back and right. and we can do it. We don't want to make America boring again, but we'd like to make governance <laughs> a little less theatrical. I agree. Yes. Um, let's end with this. I mentioned it just a minute ago, but I would have mad respect for one that says, I want to go there and change one thing instead of the ones that get up there and go, I'm going to change everything. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm totally convinced, and this is my editorializing here, and pardon me for doing it, but I'm totally convinced that when y'all get elected, there's some meeting. And in walks some old white guy with white hair and a suit. And he opens the briefcase and this glow is given off. And he goes, okay, young freshman, this is how it works. This is the deal. Walk with me, vote with me, talk like me, dress like me. You'll have no problems. And if you don't, we're going to bust your balls every day till you're gone. And for those of you serving in the house, you only get two years and you're halfway, you know, one year in and you already got to start getting reelected. I'm going to make it challenging for you unless you vote with me <laughs> what's his name mr smithers or whatever you know hmm, uh, you know the guy funny. in charge of the power plant i'm convinced y'all just get a talking to when you get there and say turn your ideals down walk with us and 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 vote with us but what i'm really specifically wanting to see is that person that runs as a candidate that says i got one issue I want to fix one damn thing and I'm oh going to fight goodness. till it gets done. Ask me, what's my one issue, please. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to tell you. <laughs> what you is ready? that one issue for you that you think oh. you really can make happen? Term limits. Term limits. I think that is the one issue we have to be outrageously serious about because you and I both know the founders never intended for someone to be there for 40 years. I mean, it's a problem when you see that it was then Senator Biden in 1975 during the fall of Saigon, who stood on the floor of the Senate and it would not approve funding for our refugees then. And you fast forward today and you see what we've got all these decades later. I mean, we should not have people in those seats for that long. We have to change that. We need term limits. Uh, we need an amendment. And, uh, you know, it's not about just one person showing up, but I know my brothers and sisters who are veterans that are also running up and they're running in races across the country. I know that I'm going to be able to meet them on the high ground. And I know that we are going to be able to work together because that's who we are. We build coalitions. I remember when I was interviewed once, you know, after I think it was my first tour, um, combat tour, and I was interviewing for a job when I got back home and the interviewer said, oh, you're a veteran. You must be a good team player then, right? And I remember looking at that person. I said, no, 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 no. I don't build. I'm not a team player. I'm a, I build coalitions. I build nations. I, I will give you my life. I will always be there for the person to my left and the to my right because that's who I am. Like, that's the difference. Like, it's not just being a team player. We are about moving forward and having purpose and moving with, moving with, moving with a purpose, moving with conviction, right? But don't you think that like, you know, uh, J.R. Wentworth Lockjaw will look at you and say, excuse me, Marjorie, if you give term <laughs> limits, we don't make millions of dollars. Come on. They're going to tell you, look, sis, 
it sounds great. Use that in your campaign. But we're going to stay up in here because this is how we make it rain. We get the cash by staying in <laughs> office. How are you going to fight back against shit like that? You know what? We do it one day at a time and we don't lose focus on the mission. And that's who I am. My husband and all my soldiers and all the people I've ever worked with in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, they will tell you I'm a focused, determined person. And you know what? You might call it David and Goliath. Some people might call me the David right now, but you know what? I know how that story ends. David wins. And we must stay persistent. We must stay optimistic. We must, you know, be grounded in our truth and the focus that we need. And and we need to get to work. We have a lot of work to do. And I'm excited to be part of that. Mm. And I don't know if you can tell by my background, I'm a big fan of the David story. Um, (laughs) That's right. So am I. I do. I do like the cross on the wall behind me. Um, Let's end with this Uh, real quick. As far as other specific items of legislation, I think the veteran community needs to see past. We're down to two bills for toxic exposures and the presumptive conditions the VA needs to recognize. Obviously, it won't do it on its own. The VA just wants more science and more science and more science and that bullshit with more science. And Congress needs to force their hand to give presumption so that anybody that was stationed over in one of those foreign combat zones will get benefits from the VA and will get appropriate health care. And it seems as though the race ended in December and no one finished the damn finish line. I talked to Senator Tester, committee chairman on the Senate side, and he said that, what is it, honoring our pat? No, the Cost of War Act has a CBO score already attached to it on the Senate side, never moved the damn bill forward. On the House side, Representative Mark Ticano has the Honoring Our Pact Act. What do you do to see to it that that these two bills get married, merged, and the presumptive conditions the veteran can go to the VA and get benefits for? I'm telling you, there's nothing that makes my blood boil than than these little one-offs. I mean, this is, I mean, talk about it being personal. These are my brothers and sisters. Again, these decision makers, majority of them that made the decisions to send us to these wars, none of them had children fighting over there. Hardly any of them had served in the military. So that's one of the things right up front is that when you make decisions, these foreign policy decisions, you better start calculating the cost of these decisions and the long, the long cost, right? I mean, this is outrageous. We have a moral responsibility to always take care of the men and women who put their lives on the line and fought for us, period. That's it. So let's get the job done and all the shenanigans and, 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 and everything that you, you just described perfectly, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable because we didn't, we didn't you know, allow those, that kind of a response from our, our service members. Well, I think I'll get to it later, but maybe I'll do it then. Well, give me a couple months. No, when you served and you sent me overseas, I said, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I will do the job to the absolute best. I will leave it all on the field. That's who we are. And so we need service members in Congress who will leave it all on the field and they will absolutely get it across that finish line. Do you think it's achievable to see both honoring our PACT Act and the Cost of War Act? Do you think it's achievable to see in 2022? movement on that? I think it is achievable to see movement. Absolutely. I mean, why not? You know, that was one of the, one of the most salient lessons I learned when I was in the military. Yes, we must ask why. And we also need to always be very vibrant in the question of why not? Don't get in your own way. Let's get to work. Let's think of other you know, ideas of how we can do this and let's do it. Right on. I am eager to see where your campaign goes. I'm eager to watch this race in North Carolina. Well, it's going to the U.S. Senate. That's where it's going. (laughs) As you can tell, I love politics. I love rolling up my sleeves and getting into the weeds about these topics. Uh, I love keeping it colorful, but I love keeping it real. And uh, you've certainly given me some real, honest answers here in this interview. And we've talked about a couple things that maybe there aren't specific answers right away. But I feel your passion. I feel your conviction in why you're running and, uh, you know, respect the hell out of everything you've always done. Uh, I was a fan of you when your book came out. Um, again, tell everybody the name of the book. Oh, yes. It's The Frontline Generation, How We Served Post 
phenomenal. If you want to know more about what goes on in Marjorie Eastman's headspace, read that book uh, from your journals. Such a good read. I look forward to seeing more from you, hearing more from you. You can come back on the show anytime. Marjorie K. Eastman, Army veteran, former psyoper, a Mustang officer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed every minute. And lastly, real quick, uh, your website, where do I find more details on your campaign? If I want to read more about your thoughts on all that we've discussed. Yes, please check out our website. It's MarjorieKEastman.com. And you can find out information on my background, how to support us. Like I said, we need support from across the country because this is the must win, must win Senate seat that's going to impact the entire nation. All right. As they say in the army, who up? <laughs> that's right. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.